You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. This week's edition of The Profile contains adult themes from a Christian perspective, which may not be suitable for younger listeners. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, I'm Abigail Thomas and you're listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. My guest today is Sheila Ray Gregoire. Sheila is a popular speaker, a marriage blogger and the author of eight books, including her most recent title, The Great Sex Rescue. Based in Belleville, Canada, she spends much of her time speaking about marriage and sex in an honest and upfront way. And as well as speaking openly about sex, please be aware we'll also talk about sexual abuse and child loss during our conversation today. Welcome to The Profile, Sheila Ray Gregoire. I've been really looking forward to speaking to you. Yeah, I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And you're, you're in Canada. How, how are things in Canada this week? Well, I'm depressed about daylight savings because it gets dark so early. Yeah. <laughs> but you probably have roughly the same thing as us, so... But I think you've had a good weekend, an exciting weekend. We have. I just had a new granddaughter last week born and she's just adorable. The birth was a little more traumatic than we had hoped, but everyone is doing well now and it's just so fun to cuddle her. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. That's lovely. So we like to begin at the beginning on the profile. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for you as, as a child. Well, I grew up in Toronto, so largest city in Canada. I lived downtown for a lot of it, so big city girl. Um, It was just my mom and me for most of my life. My dad left when I was two and moved across the country to Vancouver, so those are sort of polar opposites of the country, and I really didn't see him very much. Um, So that, and that was very formative in my life, I think, because I always felt that there was something missing, but it also made me lean on God a lot more as a child. And so I always felt that God was very real, even though I didn't have a dad. Mm-hmm. And and you grew up, I think, in the evangelical church. How was that experience for you? I did. And it was it was very good as a child. I I learned so many Bible verses. I clung to Jesus. I knew he was real. Um, I had great experiences at camp and in youth groups and with friends. And um, my formative years were really good. I got into studying scripture on my own, um, memorizing scripture on my own. I even worked in a Christian bookstore uh, from when I was 15 to 18 and just bought a ton of books and read voraciously. So, you know, so that part of it was very good. I think where things started to go a little haywire for me and I started to think there was something weird um, was when I was 16, I went on a missions trip with Teen Missions International, which is a missions group that's based in Florida. And that was really my first encounter with real fundamentalism. And that did not sit well with me. And I found that very jarring. I think you, your mom was quite a, a strong woman. You'd had a sort of very equal view of, of men and, and women. Was that part of the culture clash? Yeah, I, I grew up in a family of very strong women. You know, my mother was one of three sisters. They were all very, very strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my grandmother was a very strong woman. She was one of the first ones with a Christian radio program in Winnipeg in the 30s. Um, so, you know, really strong Christian women. And then 
to be part of a, a missions organization that didn't see women as equals, I found very weird. And even though my church at home didn't allow women elders, um, I didn't see it in the same way. And then when I came back for the fundamentalist thing, then I started questioning things because it was like it opened my eyes up. Even though things weren't as bad in the churches I was in, I now was exposed to what happens if you go to the extreme. So I started questioning a lot then. And what were the extremes of that fundamentalism? Um, It was just a weird view of God. It was like everything was about obedience and about sin. Um, They had this, they had this, series that summer that the way up is down and the way to get closer to God was through suffering. Um, And so the more that you abased yourself, the more you knew God. And that just wasn't the Jesus I knew. You know, the Jesus I know laughs. I, I picture him laughing when he puts children up on his on his knee. Whenever I picture Jesus, I see him laughing. And I never sensed Jesus laughing. I sensed Jesus being very disappointed. You know, the Jesus that I heard about in fundamentalism was the Jesus who said, Sheila, you know, I love you, but why can't you just be more like this? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> And so it wasn't that he didn't love me. It was just that he was constantly disappointed in me. And I think I've struggled with that view of God ever since. And you went on from there, you went to university and you got not one, but two master's degrees from Queen's University, Uh, one in sociology and one in public administration. Was that a good experience? It was. I loved university. I had um, great Christian friends. You know, people often, I don't know if it's like this in in Britain, um, but in Canada, the idea is if you're going to be a Christian and meet other Christians in higher education, you need to go to a Christian place of higher education. And that is not my experience at all. I think when you go to a secular university, but you join the Christian groups on campus, you meet such incredibly strong Christians. (laughs) And that was my experience. I had a group of, I don't know, probably 50 or 60 people that were so on fire for God and really knew him, but were were intellectually curious about God and weren't afraid to ask questions. And that that was wonderful. I met my husband there. Um, he was in med school, so he was hanging around a lot. So that's why I kept racking up master's degrees <laughs> while he was in school. I also thought I was going to do a PhD at that point, but then I didn't end up doing that for various reasons. But uh, um, but no, it was a really good experience. You mentioned, Keith, you say you've been married for 28 years and happily married for 25. Are, yes. you, are you happy to talk a little bit about those first three years of marriage and how that went? Yeah, they were really, we we had a tough transition. I, I always knew I loved him, but we um, we just really struggled at the first in the first few years. And a lot of it was about sex. And I write about this a lot in my sex books and on my blog, but, um, I suffered from something called vaginismus, which hardly anyone knows what it is. And it's sort of my goal in life to get everyone comfortable with saying that word, you know, (laughs) vaginismus, vaginismus. Um, I know about it from a, a Netflix show. I think it's called, um, is it called orthodoxy? 
unorthodox it Orthodox. was so good yes. i love that they had the best portrayal of it that i've ever seen i've told a number of people to go watch that scene where they finally consummate and how awful it was um but vaginismus yeah it's a sexual pain disorder where the walls uh, of the vagina contract and become very tense and it's involuntary so you can't stop it um and it makes penetration very difficult and painful if not impossible and We've known for about 50 or 60 years in the gynecology literature that that Christian women and conservative religious women suffer from vaginismus at twice the rate of the general population. So in unorthodox, you're looking at an orthodox Jewish woman <laughs> suffering from it, but but they've known that conservative um, Jews, Muslims, and Christians suffer from vaginismus at twice the rate of the general population for many years. And, uh, and so that was my story. And in those days, they didn't have good treatments. And the main concern was, was how is Keith going to deal with this wife who can't perform? And so he got all the sympathy and people were panicking about him and not me. <laughs> and that just kind of compounded the problem. And how did that get resolved in the end? Um, well, I think it was a few, I did get some therapy, which wasn't very good, but it did help me learn how to contract and relax and, and sort of control those muscles a little bit. Um, I now highly recommend pelvic floor physiotherapy. They've gotten so much better at it and they know what they're doing now. So please, if this is your story, please see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. They, that, that is not what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did learn some basic things about how to start to control it. And then I think just over a few years as we grew in trust and got over some other issues, um, as I had my first children, I think that that helped a lot. Mm. And have you always had an egalitarian view of marriage, this sort of equality between men and women in your relationship? I really have. Um, we struggled for a little bit early in those rough years where we kind of tried to fit into a mold, but we both knew that wasn't us and it didn't last very long. (laughs) Um, But in Canada, most of the evangelical churches ascribe to what I would call a complementarian view, um, which I hate that word because I think that I, I prefer the term hierarchalist or higher. How do you even say that? Hierarchical. Well, however, we know what you mean. I'm not going to try. Yes. Yes. Um, Uh, Or even I like to say husband-centered marriage versus Jesus-centered marriage. Like whose will are you following? Whose will is the wife supposed to follow? Is she supposed to follow Jesus or is she supposed to follow her husband? And I think in some views of marriage, the wife is told that the way she follows Jesus is to follow her husband. Um, And I find that very problematic for a number of reasons. I think that two people following God together should put Jesus at the center of the marriage and should wrestle through things together. And that's very much what we have done for 30 years, even if we tried to (laughs) kind of fit into other molds at one point (laughs) or another. And you mentioned that you've had children together. You have a, a daughter, Rebecca, and then you had your son, Christopher, and then Katie, when your Mm -hmm. daughter Rebecca was a toddler, your son Christopher was born. And I know this is a really painful part of your story. Are you okay to tell us a little bit about that time? Yeah, so um, we got pregnant quite early. So Rebecca was about 11 months old when we got pregnant with Christopher. And on the 22-week scan, um, they found a heart defect, a really critical heart defect. And when we did some more um, testing in utero and 
uh, they discovered that he had Down syndrome and uh, and a much more serious heart defect than most Down's kids have. Many Down's kids have heart defects, but this was on the extreme. Um, and we had a lot of pressure to abort uh, from doctors, which was difficult, um, especially because my husband was doing his pediatrics training at uh, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto at the time, the premier pediatrics hospital in Canada. And a lot of the doctors who were pressuring us were actually his supervisors. So that wasn't very good. Um, but we did carry to term. And, uh, and then when he was three and a half weeks old, he had a massive surgery to see if they could correct um, the hypoplastic left heart, which basically means he didn't have a left ventricle in his heart. Um, and he died uh, four days after surgery. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious what a, a devastating impact that must have had on your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting. I like to say that standing in the graveyard uh, was the first time I really felt heaven. You know, I, I, you always know about heaven, you think about heaven, you sing about heaven, but I felt heaven because I knew as I was standing there that my son wasn't there. He wasn't in the graveyard. He wasn't in the cemetery. Um, and it was, it was, it was an empty feeling and a joyful feeling all at the same time, because it was empty because I felt like I'm not really visiting my son here. Um, but it was joyful because I knew that he was somewhere else Mm. and he was in a good place where he'd be able to run and jump and do all the things he probably would never have done here. Um, and, uh, I think it changed, it changed a lot of my faith because, I'm not afraid of being sad now. Like I, I think sometimes we, um, we think that faith means that we have everything together and that we're we're always joyful. And what I found is that sometimes it's in the moments of deepest grief that you feel God. I think C.S. Lewis said something about that too. That that joy and grief have much more in common than happiness and joy, because mm-hmm. happiness is dependent on circumstances. But in both joy and grief you feel God. It's like you get a flash of heaven that you can't with any other, in any other way. And I certainly experienced that too. Mm. And how do you remember him today? Um, oh, just as a little peanut who tried really hard <laughs> and, uh, they were, I, I like to say I, I've made so many mistakes with my daughter's I never made a single mistake with him. So I can say that I was, I was a perfect mother to him in as much as I could have been. So, And we're going to go on to talk. You work with your daughter, Rebecca. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. But I think it was around this time or not long afterwards, you started to, to write and speak about parenting and equality and, and sex and marriage. Tell me about how that started, Sheila. Yeah. So when Katie was born a year later, um, my husband was very, very busy at the hospital. I was home with two toddlers and I just wanted something to do other than just being a mom. I mean, I loved being a mom. I stayed home their whole childhood. We homeschooled. So I was very, very much an involved mom, but I did need something else. And so I started writing magazine articles, um, 
my first book was out in 2003, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, When You Feel More Like a Maid Than a Wife and a Mother. So all about, yeah, just navigating parenting and housework and organization and and not feeling overwhelmed by it, but but having those glimpses of God in the everyday. Um, I started blogging in 2008 uh, at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, which which was the blog was based on the title of my first book. And yeah, I was talking mostly about parenting and organization and housework and marriage and all of that. Um, but over the years, I found that the more that I wrote about sex, the more my traffic grew on my blog. And so I kind of ended up taking a detour. <laughs> and it wasn't ever intentional. I never, I never set out thinking, I am going to be the Christian sex lady. Like, that is awesome. <laughs> that is what I want to do. I want to talk about sex all the time. Like, no, there was never a conscious decision. <laughs> it's just, I feel like I kind of got pushed in that direction and I run with it. And you chose to sort of walk a fine line, I think, in those early days, not coming out as uh, egalitarian because those writing around you and the other other blogs were teaching about submission in marriage and that men and women have different roles in marriage that we touched on earlier. Was that a difficult? 2008, 2009 was a weird time because blogs were really exploding. Um, and there were so many Christian mommy blogs at the time. And of course I wanted to get traffic. And so in order to get traffic, the best way to do it is to network with all these other blogs. But most of them were coming from this, this view of marriage that I really didn't share um, and the advice for everything was, you know, is your husband not a spiritual leader? You just need to submit and pray more. Um, is your husband bad with money? You just need to submit and pray more. Um, you know, whatever the problem was, is your husband not spending enough time with the kids? It's probably because you're, um, you're expecting too much out of him and you need to submit and pray more. And the answer to everything was submit and pray more. And I, I found that extremely unhelpful. <laughs> like, like if you're really struggling, if your husband's not spending any time with the children, I don't think that the answer is just to submit and pray more. But that seemed to be the only tool in the arsenal that all of these blogs had. And I'm oversimplifying and I realize that and I'm sorry for that. But um, it, it just seemed like everybody was talking about how the secret to marriage is to commit no matter what um, respect him no matter what, submit no matter what, and then pray and God will magically work it all out. And I just haven't seen that happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that God calls us to do more. It, it's like what I call the duck principle. This was this was heavily taught. And I, I learned this on several women's retreats I went to too. Like if God is trying to get at your husband, if God is trying to change your husband and you are standing in the way between God and your husband by trying to take control of the situation, then when God tries to hit your husband with a two by four, he's going to hit you instead. So what you need to do is duck and get out of the way so that God can hit your husband with a two by four. Um, and that was like this principle that was heavily taught. It's like the reason that God isn't able to change your husband is because you are trying to take too much control. And so you need to give up control and you need to just pray more and then God will be able to change your husband. So it's quite an interesting um, view of <clears throat> what God is like then. It's kind of God is quite, uh, comes across in that view in the way you're expressing it as quite controlling and, you know, wanting to <laughs> wallop you around. <laughs> It, it doesn't feel very a healthy view of of God. 
No, and it certainly is not focused on healthy relationship dynamics either, because we know that emotional health and emotionally healthy relationship dynamics are such where you are able to talk about what you are feeling um, and where you are able to bring up issues. And even the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. And the Bible talks about how we are supposed to address things directly. We're not supposed to be passive aggressive or manipulative. And yet a lot of this advice was essentially telling women to be manipulative because it was disrespectful to ask for what you needed or wanted because it would be a way of telling your husband what he needs to do. And you can't do that because that would be taking leadership in the marriage. So when was it you sort of came out from behind the parapet, if you like, and and said, actually, this is not what I think? Well, I think I always knew that wasn't what I thought. But at the same time, when everybody is teaching that what guys really need is respect and women really need love, when everybody is teaching that um, you just need to believe the best of each other, and the problem in marriage is that we all expect too much of each other and we go into marriage with with unrealistic expectations. And you need to let go of those expectations. Like when everyone is kind of teaching from the same playbook, then you start to feel like you're the one who must be wrong or, well, maybe our marriage is just the exception, but this this is the right teaching. And so I did teach. I echoed a lot of that stuff. Never about submission per se or never about hierarchy in marriage, but certainly about you know, don't have unrealistic expectations, which I still believe, but I don't think that's the root of most problems. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's not why marriages get into trouble in general. Um, uh, you know, don't have unrealistic expectations. You need to respect him more. What does respect look like? And so I would parrot a lot of this stuff, even though I, it really wasn't true in my marriage. I always thought I was the exception. Um, and my husband and I were teaching at marriage conferences at the same time. Um, we've been teaching with Family Life Canada since about, oh gosh, 2005, maybe, uh, 2006. And, you know, we would often teach stuff that wasn't true in our marriage. Um, and teach stuff like, like hold up books like Love and Respect by Emerson Egrich and say that this was a great book because everybody said it was a great book. And I thought, well, he loves Jesus. We love Jesus. We all love Jesus. We must be teaching basically the same thing. And it's only in the last few years that I've started to realize, no, hold on a second. <laughs> There's actually fundamentally different teaching going on in the church than what I believe. And it's time that I really look into this and start seeing that maybe a lot of the stuff that we've been parroting is actually harmful and it is, it is doing more harm than good. And, um, I started speaking out a lot in 2000, probably 16, 17, but then in 2019, things took a real change because I started to read some of the bestsellers and I realized, whoa, this is not okay. And that, I think that was when you, this love and, love and respect, I don't think is that well known in the UK, but tell me a little bit about the book and the first time that you read it, because I think that was a pretty transformative moment in your journey. Yes. So Love and Respect was published in 2004. It's by Emerson Egerich. And his basic thesis is that women um, need love, whereas men need respect. And men um, 
men interpret respect as love. Like, like when you respect them, they will feel love. And both men and women need it unconditionally. So you need to unconditionally respect your husband. And then he explains what respect is, which is hierarchy, giving him hierarchy, giving him authority, honoring his insight, um, giving him sex and a bunch of other things. Like these are things which must be given unconditionally. Um, even if he's drinking or straying or, uh, and he has, he mentions in his book, um, episodes where the husband was physically abusive, but then repented. And because he repented, she must now give him unconditional respect again. So no mention of the love bombing cycle, um, no mention of, uh, actually getting licensed counselors involved or domestic hotlines involved or making sure that, um, that he proves that he's trustworthy. It's just about him saying the right words and a really problematic book, but it's also the second best selling marriage book in North America in the Christian church. Um, the five love languages beats it, but love and respect is the second one. And it is the most used marriage curriculum in churches. You mentioned the love bombing cycle. This is a, like an abusive, uh, cycle in a marriage. Could you just explain? Right. So, yeah. So, so what happens is the abuser abuses until the abuse, abuse victim, um, can't take it anymore, gets courage, whatever it might be and says, and sets a boundary and says no more and separates or gets other people involved or whatever it might be. Um, and then the abuser, uh, gets very repentant, apologizes, brings flowers, says all the right things, and can often convinces everyone around that they are truly repentant and that the problem person is now the abuse victim who doesn't want to believe how repentant this person is. And um, so the abuse victim is often pressured to let the abuser back into the home or back into her life or his life, because abuse can go both ways. Um, and then as soon as they are back in and they have that control again, the abuse starts again. And that's an extremely common phenomenon. And most people who escape abuse go through that cycle seven times before they finally get out. Do you feel inner conflict between truth and lies, the way of Christianity and the way of the world? If so, it's time to live no lies. With huge spiritual insight, New York Times bestseller John Mark Comer guides us into recognizing and resisting the lies that rob us of peace and freedom. Live No Lies, yours free when you take out an annual subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. And you started to speak about this on your blog and you especially, you say the traffic increase, especially when you spoke about sex and you started to write about, uh, write books about sex Tell me a little bit, some of the problems um, in the way Christians have talked about sex in particular uh, in marriage. Yeah, so I started, I, I wrote my first book on sex in 2012, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Um, I've since completely rewritten it. There's a new version coming out in March, which I'm very excited about, but for the 10th anniversary. But anyway, so I started writing in 2012 books on sex. Um, I created courses on sex on my on my blog. I have an orgasm course, a boost your libido course, um, a honeymoon prep course. So lots of things. I have 31 days to great sex. I have sexy dares, like we're all sex all the time. Um and I, I had been churning out so much helpful resources I felt about sex, but 
people still had a lot of the same hangups and I couldn't get to the root of it until it was one Friday afternoon in January of 2019. I had a migraine, didn't really feel like working. And I was on Twitter and people were having this this debate about the whole love and respect book. And she was saying, well, she's a woman and she needs respect just as much as love and the whole thing is bunk. And it occurred to me that I had that book upstairs, but I had never read it. And so as a method of procrastinating, I went up and got the book and I turned to the sex chapter because that's mostly what I write about. It's only about 10 pages long and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room. I mean, I couldn't believe what I read because he said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Meaning that husbands need sex and wives don't. Mm. Um, and he said that a husband needs physical release through sexual intimacy. So the need that the husband has is for physical release. And if he doesn't get physical release, he will come under satanic attack. Um, and he talked about how husbands who don't get physical release are often going to turn to affairs and that most affairs are caused by women not having enough sex. And women, if you want him to understand your body image issues, you need to understand his struggle with lust and you need to minister to him sexually as unto Jesus Christ. And that was the entire thing. There was not a single word about how women can feel pleasure too. There was not a single word about how sex is about intimacy. It's not just about his physical release. Like it was abominable. And this is the most used marriage curriculum in North American churches. And I thought, if this is what we're teaching, no wonder people are messed up with sex. And that idea that sex is for men and not for women, that, that women just need affection and that men need sex. So women give sex in order to get, get affection and men give affection in order to get sex. And it's all so transactional and very ugly. And just a misunderstanding of biblical sexuality completely. And I thought, we got to do something about this. And so that the next week, I wrote a series of posts on my blog about love and respect, which really blew up. The first one was about how love and respect treated sex. And then the next few were about the problems um, with how the book handled abuse and with the whole concept of unconditional respect, which isn't valid. And we had we heard from hundreds and hundreds of women who told us that that book enabled abuse in their marriage. Um, and the book is published by Focus on the Family. I don't know how familiar, how big Focus is in Britain, but it's a very, very large organization in North America, mm. huge radio program. And I had been on Focus on the Family three times. I knew the host. And so we we compiled a report, a statistical report of all of these comments and emails that I had gotten about love and respect to show, you know, what this book did in terms of abuse. And we sent it into focus on the family thinking that they would listen to us and they completely ignored us. Wow. So what did you do next? Like, how do you deal with, <laughs> with that? You, you're presumably still feeling very angry at this point. Yeah. And just, and just, I felt um, very betrayed to think that I'm, I wasn't upset that somebody wrote a book as bad as Love and Respect because there's always going to be people who write bad books. That's not the problem. The problem is that this book was heavily promoted and became such a bestseller, even though it said such terrible things. 
And like, what does that say about us as a church culture that we have no discernment? And then the fact that focus on the family ignored like, like hundreds of women who said that they, that they had endured abuse because of this book. Um, and working for me at the time, it's kind of interesting. My daughter, Rebecca was working with me and she has a background in psychology and psychometrics and survey design. That's what she just loved. There was another family friend who was working for us who had a master's in epidemiology with a, um, a major focus on statistics. And she'd done a lot of statistical analysis and she had just had a baby. Her husband, we got her husband a job in our hometown. So they had just moved to our hometown and she wasn't looking for a big job. She just wanted something to do part-time. And so she was just helping me out on the blog a bit and it was fine. But here I have this woman who is a trained statistician and I have a woman who's really good at survey design and they're all working for me at this, at this point. <laughs> and Joanna, our, my statistician friend said to me, you know, maybe I should just go back and get a PhD so that I could do a big survey on how teachings like this are affecting women and see it as a public health outcome. Because if this is hurting women, if this is, if this is causing abuse, if this is causing um, worse sexual outcomes, then that's actually a public health intervention issue. And I said to her, well, we don't need to do a PhD. We could just get a book contract. And so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, we shopped around and, we, and Baker Books picked it up very quickly. And we decided that we were going to do the, a huge survey. We thought, well, focus on the family can ignore, you know, 500 women, but can they ignore 20,000? And so we surveyed 20,000 women from all over the globe. So a lot of Brits um, filled out that survey. If, if you were one of them listeners, thank you very much. I know it took half an hour of your life and it was incredibly invasive. <laughs> um, but what we were looking at, we, we asked about marital satisfaction and then we asked about sexual satisfaction. And then we asked a number of um, evangelical, common evangelical teachings. And we said, have you ever been taught this and have you ever believed it at two different points in your life? So before you were married and currently. From that, we were able to compare women who did believe something with women who didn't believe something and see how that impacted marital and sexual satisfaction. And so we were able to tease out which teachings actually hurt women's sexual satisfaction and hurt women's marriages and caused an increase in vaginismus and primary sexual pain. Um, and so that was really exciting. And that's what, that's what turned into the great sex rescue is that huge survey. And then the, the um, research project we did into evangelical bestsellers and how much they are propagating and, and spreading a lot of these toxic messages. So can you share um, some of the examples that people have given you of how some of those uh, Christian books and teachings have affected them? Well, um, we found four big teachings that negatively impacted things the most. There were other teachings that, that had negative impacts, but there were four big ones that really hurt women. But I would say there's one that's sort of overall, over all four of them, like in Lord of the Rings terms, it's like the one ring to rule them all. So this is like the one teaching that rules them all. And it's it's that idea that Emerson Egerich expressed in love and respect. If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So it's that idea that sex is for men and not for women. And all of the all of the negative teachings stem from that. And I think it's it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of what sex is. Because if if I if if we asked 100 people on the street, 
did you have sex last night? I mean, first of all, that's a terrible question. You'd get put in jail. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, what people think you're asking is something about, you know, did he put penis into vagina, move around the climax? So what, what we're picturing is, is the act of intercourse. Like we tend to equate sex and intercourse. The problem with that definition is that she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head, like totally not engaged. She could be lying there in emotional turmoil, or she could even be lying there in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. So our common definition of sex ignores her experience. And that is not what the Bible does. That is a misunderstanding. Because if you look biblically, you know, Genesis 4 verse 1, it's a very strange phrase. It says, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And it's easy to laugh at that and think, oh, God's just embarrassed of using the real word. <laughs> but I don't think that's what's going on at all. The Hebrew root of that word to know is the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, O God. It's this deep longing for intimacy, this deep longing for connection. And so, you know, God is telling us at the very beginning of scripture that sex is something deeply intimate. We know from Song of Solomon that it's pleasurable for both. I mean, she's having a lot of fun there too. And mm -hmm. she's, you know, so it's intimate, it's pleasurable for both. And in 1 Corinthians 7, we get this picture of real mutuality. Everything that the husband is given, the wife is given. In fact, in some cases, she's given it first. So we have this intimate, pleasurable, mutual thing. And yet we're treating sex like it's one-sided intercourse. And that's a problem because it doesn't line up biblically. And it also doesn't line up with how God made our bodies. Um, one of the big findings from our survey was that Christians have about a 47 point orgasm gap. And by that, I mean that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter, while the equivalent number for women is only 48. And that should be a problem, especially because if you think about it, God gave women a body part where the only purpose is pleasure. God gave women no refractory period, which means that we can have orgasm upon orgasm, whereas after a man orgasms, he has to wait, you know, roughly 45 minutes in order to go again. <laughs> um, so women have the ability to have multiple orgasms, men don't. And so women should be the more naturally sexual. And yet that's not what we're seeing. Um, and a lot of that, what we have found is a lot of that comes down to our teaching and what we specifically teach about sex. We, we treat sex as if it is an obligation for women and an entitlement for men. And that makes sex seem something very ugly for women. And like, um, if women need something more to reach orgasm, because of those 48% of women who reach orgasm frequently or always, um, the majority of them do not reach it through intercourse alone. Most need a lot of other help and most reach orgasm more reliably through other routes. And so when we prioritize intercourse, when we think that is what sex is, then what she needs can be seen as an afterthought or she's just being selfish and we're not prioritizing her experience. And you've, in The Great Sex Rescue, your, your latest book, you address uh, marriages where, uh, well, it's, it's a book for everybody, I think it's fair to say, but you, know, you particularly want to help those couples where 
um, the orgasm gap is a problem, but also where sex in general has has caused problems. Could you tell me perhaps some of the consequences of this view of sex on on individuals and how that plays out in relationships? So one of them is this idea that all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. That's heavily taught in the church. You know, that lust is a, is a problem that men have. And so women need to adjust by, by dressing differently, um, by having sex frequently so that he doesn't lust once you're married. Um, so this is seen as a guy's problem. And in, in the book series, Every Man's Battle, which sold roughly 4 million copies. I don't know how big that ever was in Britain. Yeah, it was definitely uh, advertised around when I was uh, a teenager, for sure. But that book said that men got there naturally, like men got men, men sexually sin naturally simply by being male, like that the male sex drive is equated with the objectification of women. And the solution in every man's battle is to stop objectifying every woman and instead to objectify only one woman for the rest of your life. So it calls women, it calls wives the methadone for the husband's sex addictions. Like she's literally methadone and methadone is a drug which we give um, when people are coming off of heroin or some other opiate. And so it's like a substitute for what you really want. And it's telling women that you are merely a substitute. You will satiate him so that he doesn't go after what he really wants. It's so dehumanizing and objectifying. It's very similar to the wives you need to have sex frequently so that he doesn't watch porn. Um, and that that's very damaging to women. Orgasm rates go down. Your rates of sexual pain increase. Um, all kinds of very negative outcomes. Because when we have sex because we feel like we need to, or else something bad is going to happen. So you're having sex under threat. That has nothing to do with intimacy. We talked to a number of people in our follow-up focus groups who had really struggled with orgasm or who had struggled with sexual pain. And it wasn't their husband's who had been pressuring them. This is, this is really the point of the great sex rescue. This is what we were trying to get across is that Often the struggles that couples have with sex, they're not coming because he is pressuring her. I mean, sometimes that is the case, yes. But in a lot of cases, it's that she has internalized a lot of really negative messages. So many wives that we talked to said, my husband had no idea what was going through my head. So Sheila Ray Gregoire, it's your your books obviously had a positive impact on a lot of people, but I think it's it's fair to say that it's not been well received by everybody, especially not those authors that you have criticized in your book. Yes, definitely. You know, we've had so it's doing really well. It's selling really well. We have counselors recommending it. Um, a lot of pastors have reached out saying I could never in all good conscience recommend a lot of Christian sex books, but this is one I can freely give out. It's so healing. And so that's been so gratifying to us. But part of our research project for the book was looking at the best-selling resources that were out there right now and seeing which ones really perpetrated the most harm. And we created a 12-point rubric of healthy sexuality, 12 markers of healthy sexuality teaching. And we graded each book on a scale of zero to four for each of those markers. So the, the highest score you could get was 48 and the lowest score you could get was zero. 
to give you just a sense of this, The Gift of Sex by Cliff and Joyce Penner, which is an evangelical book, scored 47 out of 48. So it was very possible to score well. Um, John Gottman's book, which is a secular book by a secular researcher, it was it's the best-selling secular marriage book, and we used it as our control book, um, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. It similarly scored 47 out of 48. Love and Respect literally scored zero. Um, you know, for women only by Shanti Feldon, I think it scored like 11 or something. It was in the harmful category. Power of a Praying Wife scored harmful. Active Marriage by Tim LaHaye scored harmful. Every Man's Battle scored harmful. You know, a number of the bestsellers literally scored like in the very harmful category. Very few scored healthy. And we are, you know, throughout our book, there's quotes peppered in from these books to show, hey, this stuff honestly was taught. You know, um, sheet music by Kevin Lehman told women that when you are postpartum, you should give him a hand job when he's ready to climb the walls or, you know, that when you're having your period every 72 hours, you should be giving him oral sex so that he doesn't watch pornography. Like these books said these things <laughs> and we wanted to show that we're not just making this up. Like there's a reason women believe this and it's because it's been heavily taught and we need to change the conversation about sex. And I, a lot of people have not appreciated that, especially the authors and a lot of the big organizations that promotes these books, because I think that they have a vested interest in things staying the way they are. People, people really are very committed to seeing marriage through um, more of a male lens, where sex is about male entitlement, and that that just hurts marriage. It's not biblical, and it hurts marriage. But a lot of people are more committed to that than they are to the idea um, that women should enjoy sex. And I think there's an underlying fear too that if we don't tell women they have to have sex, they simply won't. The only way to get women to have sex is to tell them they have to because secretly they fear women don't like it. We actually found that's not true at all. We found that um, when women feel emotionally close to their husbands during sex, when there's high marital satisfaction, when they frequently reach orgasm, when there's no porn involved, and when there's no sexual dysfunction involved, women have pretty frequent sex. <laughs> you know, So the problem is not frequency. The problem is not libido. The problem is there is something stopping her from wanting sex. And we need to figure out what those issues are and deal with the underlying problems rather than just telling her she needs to have sex because that is toxic and that will backfire. And you've found your husband, Keith, has become increasingly angry about the way women have been taught <laughs> and treated as well, I think. Well, you know, he, he's always supported what I've done, but in the last few years, you know, I kind of said to him, my personality is when I, I'm an Enneagram eight, I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTJ. Um, I just charge ahead for those of you who know anything about personality. So this is like, a, um, extrovert. I don't know. I'm not hundred percent. Can't remember. Extrovert, intuitive thinking, judging, but like, I, I'm, I'm your typical, CEO, general of an army, like if something's wrong, I'm going to fight for the underdog and, and get angry. And my husband is much more of a, um, a rule, like a, he likes rules. He likes boxes. And I said, you know, hun, 
I really needed to run beside me sometimes. And he's just taken up that challenge. And the more that he's looked into these books, the the angrier he's become as well. And he's actually written some of the most angry posts on my blog <laughs> lately. Um, not angry in a bad way, but just calling for justice and calling for uh, us to, to recapture what real intimacy and passion are supposed to look like, as opposed to just arguing for a very cheap and ugly form of sex, which I think is what we've done in the church. And we need to stop it and get back to something which is life-giving and not soul-crushing. And so he actually authored a book with me that's coming out in March, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. And I'm really excited about it. I think it turned out so well, but it just gives a new, a, a fresh perspective on how a husband can help a wife want sex as opposed to just how a husband can pressure a wife to have sex. And I think one of the interesting things about your work is that you've been prepared to change your mind over time of what you you think about sex and marriage Mm -hmm. and what you teach about sex and marriage. I think you've asked for two of your earlier books to be taken out of print, for example. Yes. Yes. Why was that? Yeah, I just, to love, honor, and vacuum, and my second book, Honey, I Don't Have a Headache Tonight, I asked for those to be taken out of print um, because I just, I I don't teach in the same way anymore. I wouldn't emphasize the same things. I don't think it was trauma-informed, and I'm just not comfortable with them anymore. And then The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, which which, as I said, was written in 2012, it's not that I disagree with it. I just wouldn't put the same emphasis on things. And I certainly wouldn't make it as gendered. I think that we say too much in the church, men are like this and women are like this. Um, you know, men want sex, women don't. Men have uh, spontaneous libidos, women have responsive libidos. Men are visually stimulated, women aren't. And the truth is, it's not like that. There's overlapping bell curves. <laughs> There's a lot of women who are who fit more like what we think a man is. There's a lot of men who fit more like what we think a woman is. And so we need to get out of the gendered language and just talk about how do you negotiate different libidos? How do you negotiate when someone's more spontaneous and someone's more responsive? Um, how do you, how do you fight against lust and porn, no matter who is the one who's struggling with it? Uh, and so I've rewritten that book to, to focus more on principles rather than genders. Um, because not all men are one way and not all women are another way. And often things flip over time in a marriage too. And so we just need to, to learn how to love each other and be intimate despite those differences, no matter which direction those differences go. And you, you work closely with your daughter, Rebecca. How does that work? Obviously, you, you talk a lot. You, you share a podcast. You talk about sex a lot together. How have you negotiated that in a healthy way? <laughs> you know, I think it's actually really helped us because, because I work with my daughter. We've made sure that I know nothing about her sex life and she knows nothing about mine, but we talk about orgasms all the time. So we we end up talking very clinically and explicitly without talking personally. And I think that's a good mix because no, I don't want anyone to know about my sex life. I really don't. And I, I think people can read my stuff and have absolutely no idea like what, <laughs> what we actually find fun. But you know what? It doesn't matter what Keith and I find fun. What matters is what does the research say? And that's what I'm really calling the church to do is to stop writing books about marriage and sex from an author's perspective and start writing marriage and books about sex and marriage that are based on actual research. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what do we know is true about people and how can we navigate those differences? 
And you also use this phrase, having a cross-centered sex life. What does that mean? Yeah, like keeping Jesus at the center. And that means that it is not about what I can get. It's about what we can give. And it's, and it's about understanding that intimacy is the key. <laughs> you know, that, that anything we do in the bedroom should be building intimacy. You know, Jesus, Jesus came to reconcile us to himself. Jesus came so that we could deeply know him and be known by him. Sex is this deep opening of ourselves, this deep vulnerability that we share together. And as we share in emotional, spiritual vulnerability, then passion grows. And that's what we should be looking for. But when sex becomes about entitlement, we actually work against all of that. And instead of sex being life-giving, it does become soul-crushing. So as, as we draw to a, a close, Sheila, Ray, Gregoire, what does following Jesus look like for you now in the midst of all this and, and everything else that's going on in your life? Oh, I think it, it I, you know, one of the troubles that I've had over the last few years as I've received so much pushback from people that I trusted, from people that I thought honestly cared, has been I, I've had... I've had difficulty with God. You know, God, why is it that the best-selling books in evangelicalism actually do so much harm? And I've had to come back to Jesus. And I've spent a lot of time lately just reading the Gospels because when I can get a picture of Jesus, I understand so much more. You know, you can ask yourself, okay, let me just picture who he is. Would the Jesus that I can see in the Gospels, would he ever say this to a hurt woman? Would he ever pressure women to act like this? Would he ever pressure men to act like this? Would he ever teach something that's about entitlement? And sometimes um, I just need to get the blinders off and I just need to look back at Jesus because that's the only thing that keeps me going. And so maybe I'll spend a few more years in the Gospels. I don't know. <laughs> I just find I like the Gospels and the Psalms and I'm really having an issue with everything else because I think it, it was so tainted to me because I was in fundamentalism a lot in the blogging world and I'm slowly getting out of that. Um, but to me, it just comes back to really seeing who he is because he is the word of God. You know, we interpret scripture through Jesus. And so unless we know Jesus, we can't really see what God is saying. And so I'm trying my best to hold on to him. Sheila, Ray, Gregoire, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. We'll make sure all the links to your blogs and um, books and everything are available for people. And uh, yeah, thanks again for being with us. It's been great. Thank you. I'm Abigail Thomas, and you've been listening to my interview with Sheila Ray Gregoire here on Premier Christian Radio. For more conversations like this one, download the profile as a podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. Earlier in this interview, Sheila Ray Gregoire expressed her view on a book entitled Love and Respect, which was originally published through Focus on the Family. In a statement, Focus on the Family said, as a ministry with more than 40 years of history invested in helping marriages thrive and equipping both husbands and wives to embrace the gift of marriage as God designed it, Focus carefully reviews every resource we offer. We believe Mrs Gregoire has seriously misread and misjudged various aspects of love and respect, and we further maintain that its central message aligns both with scripture and with the common sense principles of healthy relationships. Even 16 years after its release, 
Focus continues to hear from numerous couples who enthusiastically testify to the positive transformation love and respect has brought to their marriages. Mrs. Gregoire argues that love and respect's message, quote, is that women only really need love and men only need respect, end quote. In stark contrast, Dr. Egerix clearly states in the book, quote, Of course, women need respect and guys need love, but I'm talking about the primary drive in each sex. A woman does need respect, and if a man loves her properly, she will get that respect, end quote. Focus on the family continued, At this point, we feel there is little else we could say to change Mrs. Gregoire's mind, and she undoubtedly feels the same way. Focus on the family maintains that love and respect has a biblically sound empowering message for husbands and wives and will continue to offer it alongside a broad range of resources from diverse authors and backgrounds to nurture and strengthen Christian couples in their marriage journeys. To read the full statement, visit focusonthefamily.com. If any of the themes discussed in this program has affected you, you can get support through our prayer line. Call Premier Lifeline on 0300 111 01. That's 0300 111 0101.